0: Welcome to the Brady-Haywood podcast. The podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. Today we're going to talk about the Citicorp Tower, which is the story of the failure that never happened. It's about a structural engineer who finds out they've made a serious error in the design of a tall building. One that could collapse the building and endanger the lives of 200,000 people. We're going to look at the discovery of this error and the crazy race against time to strengthen the building before the arrival of hurricane season. One day in June 1978, the engineer, William LeMeasure receives a phone call. On the line is New Jersey engineering student Diane Hartley. She tells LeMessur she's writing a paper on the building he's designed the City Corp Centre Tower. She wants to talk to him about the positioning of the columns in the tower, because according to her professor, they're in the wrong place. So to understand what she's talking about, we need to have a chat about the tower itself. It was constructed in Manhattan the previous year, and at the time it was the seventh tallest building in the world. And what we're interested in is the design of its lower levels, particularly the first nine stories. Because rather than having four columns located at each corner of the building, as you'd usually expect, they're actually located at the centre of each side of the building. Now the reason for this odd choice of column positioning was because of a church located on the site. The church was built in 1905, was very dilapidated, and as part of the City Corp development, it had to be demolished and rebuilt. Which was a real nuisance because it was going to take up valuable space on the site. But the engineer, William LeMessure, came up with a clever solution he decided to place the church in a corner of the site and allow the City Corp Tower to overhang it. But to do this, he had to move the tower's corner column away from where the church was, which is exactly what he did. He moved all four columns away from the corners and located them instead on the face of the four sides of the building. But this caused a tricky engineering problem. He now had the four corners of the tower essentially hanging in mid-air, nine stories above the ground. And above each of these four corners were 50 stories of load bearing down on them. To solve this engineering problem, LeMetre used a unique bracing system for the building. Now, it's hard to describe this system on a podcast, but if you're interested, get on Google and search for City Cup Tower Bracing System, and you'll see plenty of images of it. But if you don't feel like getting on Google, that doesn't matter, because the only thing that's really important is that Measure included a steel bracing system in the building, and this system was central to the building's structural integrity. Not only did it help carry the building's vertical loads, but it also played a key role in resisting the wind loads that would affect the building. And in true engineering style, LeMessure worked all this out on a napkin in a Greek restaurant in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he was so impressed with a solution that he wanted the architect to put the bracing system on the outside of the building as an architectural feature. LeMessure lost that argument and the architect instead put it on the inside of the facade, then clad the building in glass and reflective aluminium. Now, back to the phone call in 1978 between the student and LeMessure. So she says her professor said the columns are in the wrong place. But LaMessure tells her there's a very good reason for their positioning and he explains about the church. Then he goes on to explain that the columns are in fact ideally placed to resist quartering winds. These are the winds that blow towards the corners of the building. LaMessure then refers her to some articles, tells her that now she really has an interesting story to tell and the call ends. And our story would probably end there too or at least end very differently Except that LaMessure was an adjunct professor at Harvard and MIT. And he decided that if this student had trouble getting her head around wind loading and bracing, then his students probably would have the same problem. So he thought the Tower would make an interesting case study. So he sets about preparing a lecture for his students. He first calculates the forces in the bracing due to the winds striking the face of the building. This was a calculation he'd done before when he was designing the structure. Then he calculates the forces in the bracing due to the quartering winds, which he hadn't done before, because he was of the view that bracing forces due to quartering winds are always lower than those from winds hitting the face of the building. But Measure gets a shock. He discovers this isn't the case with the City Corp Tower, and it isn't the case because he's adopted a unique bracing system. Now he discovers that the quartering winds actually generate 40% more force in the bracing than the winds hitting the face of the building. And things were about to get worse. It turns out that during the building's construction, there'd been a change. When these bracing members had arrived on site, they were comprised of separate pieces that were supposed to be welded together. But the steel supplier for the project had proposed a solution to dispense with the welding. Bolted connections would be used instead. This change had been approved by LeMessure's New York office, but LeMessure himself had only become aware of it about one month before he'd received the call from the student. So now LeMessure wonders, did the design office consider quartering winds when they designed these bolted connections? It turns out they didn't and when he takes this into account his calculations showed that the forces in these bolts were 160% higher due to the quartering winds. This was a massive increase in structural engineering terms. Le Meijer describes himself as feeling pretty shaky because the integrity of the building was going to be at risk during high winds. He tries not to panic. Instead he travels to Canada on the 26th of July to meet Alan Davenport. Now Davenport is the director of the Boundary Layer Wind Tunnel Laboratory at the University of Western Ontario and he'd undertaken wind tunnel tests on the tower in the past. La wants to know if the wind tunnel tests showed that the wind loads were in fact lower than he was assuming in his calculations. If they were, it might just mean that the building was okay. But there was more bad news. The tests indicated that the loads could in fact be higher than La was assuming. The reason was that the quartering winds actually had the potential to dynamically excite the building. In other words, the building had the potential to vibrate in the wind, making the bracing forces worse. In engineering terms, the structure had a return period of 1 in 16 years, which in Le words, was very low. Awesomely low. But there was an upside. At the top of the building was a 370 tonne concrete-tuned mass damper. Now the purpose of this damper was to minimise building movements under normal wind-loading conditions. It simply damped them out. And in a hurricane it would also help damp out the vibrations and assist with the building's overall stability. But there was a problem. In a hurricane, the building would probably lose power and the damper wouldn't work. But the most distressing of all was that it was now late July and hurricane season would begin in November. At that point there'd be strong enough winds to threaten the tower. So on the 2nd of August 1978, LeMégur blows the whistle on himself. He tells Citicorp that the building has a serious design error. There follows a bunch of meetings with Citicorp personnel, lawyers and the Department of Buildings. All attention turns to resolving the problem. If this $175 million US dollar tower collapses, the lives of up to 200,000 members of the public will be put at risk. The following morning there's a meeting at Citicorp Tower and LeMessur proposes a solution they will strengthen 200 of the joints in the building by welding 50mm thick steel plates across the bolted connections. In a way, it's a sophisticated band-aid solution. And at the meeting, they pull plasterboard away from around one of the joints on a vacant level of the building, and they decide LeMessure's solution will work. And I should point out at this stage that LeMessure is incredibly relieved that he lost the argument with the architect about placing the bracing on the outside of the building. Strengthening it there would have been a very demanding and also very public nightmare. But the clock was now ticking. November and hurricane season wasn't far away. So Measures Office completes the plate design and a contractor's engaged to strengthen the structure. The work is undertaken at night, in complete secrecy. From 5pm onwards, drywall crews and carpenters remove the plasterboard from around the joints that they'll be working on that night. From 8pm until 4 in the morning, the welding of the plates takes place. Then labourers come and clean up the mess before the first office workers arrive. This goes on seven nights a week. In order to get enough welders to keep up with the workload, the Department of Buildings fast-tracks welding certifications. The measure works out the order of joints to be fixed so that they're progressively adding strength to the structure. Evacuation plans for the area are drawn up and weather experts are engaged to forewarn of storms. Backup power is put in place for the mass damper and its supplier provides round-the-clock technical support to ensure it remains operational. They even installed strain gauges in the building to monitor its behaviour. But the wires to these gauges kept getting mysteriously cut in the middle of the night because they weren't installed by union electricians. But now with so many people involved in managing the crisis, questions start being asked as to what's going on. And Citicorp releases a statement saying that the building has been strengthened, but its integrity is not in question. Now over the decades, the ethical appropriateness of this statement will come under fire, especially Le role in its release. But the good news for Citicorp is that the media seemed generally uninterested. But then one evening LeMessurier arrives home to find he'd received a call from the New York Times. He calls them back but he's not relishing the thought of being grilled. But he's told the journalist has gone on strike. And the journalists of all the major papers have also gone on strike. And they remained on strike until weeks after the crisis had passed. In fact the story remained hidden until it was broken in 1995 by Joe Morgenstern in his article for the New York Magazine. It's called The 59-Story Crisis and it's a wonderfully detailed read on how the crisis was managed. But at the time, every night, work continues in earnest. LaMessure remembers landing at LaGuardia Airport one night and looking out over the East River. He says the City Corp Tower was a pillar of fire as welders worked up and down levels, strengthening joints. Then on the 1st of September, they get the news they've been dreading. Hurricane Ella was tracking for New York. Le feels that this is the closest they ever came to hitting the panic button and activating the evacuation plan. But only a few hours later the hurricane changes direction and heads back out to sea. Finally in October all the welding is completed and the crisis has passed. It's taken the combined resources of Le his engineers, Citicorp, a team of welders and labourers along with the Department of Buildings to get through it. And it's rumoured to have cost Citicorp 4.3 million US dollars. But now they had one of the highest rated buildings for wind in the world. And during the crisis, all eyes had been on the strengthening. But now with that out of the way, the legal wranglings begin. Citicorp takes legal action against LeMessure and the architect, claiming the strengthening costs. But Joe Morganson says there was an absence of the usual nastiness which accompanies these type of proceedings. LeMessure offers Citicorp 2 million US dollars which is the value of his insurance policy. They take it. No litigation ensues. Over the years since the story broke, LeMessler's discussed the crisis with his Harvard students. He's reminded them that you have a social obligation. In return for getting a license and being regarded with respect, you're supposed to be self-sacrificing and look beyond the interest of yourself and your client to society as a whole. And the most wonderful part of my story is that when I did it, nothing bad happened.